apologetic how how we feeling how we're doing good you little listeners so if you can't tell i'm back it's me babs it's me andrew you know and um i got someone very lovely with me someone brand new to the sec family but also to the podcast committee i'd like to well they can do the introductions themselves Hello, um, my name is Mari. I'm from Mexico, so double M, I'm in a minimum. <laughs> so yeah, like I was talking with Andrew previously, uh, I didn't expect to be selected for the, for the podcast committee and I'm very excited to be here. I love speaking, I love intonation, I love being a little bit sassy there, being serious and I think we both vibe really well. Have you heard the news today? The world's become a better place I wonder how And everybody sings in peace There's only one thing that we need It's unapologetic So today we're going to talk uh, about black bodies Specifically how black people were the creators, the um, catalysts for a lot of what is now known as rock music and how they created this uh, music genre out of mixing different genre types, but also using their cultural expressions and their connections as communities, whether it be through religion, through culture, through ethnicity, to create songs and how this sort of music genre has been reappropriated and sort of vocalized by white artists and just talk about how music has like is a reflection of our lives but it's also a, a, like a tool to to change society in a way so it's yeah. like a like it's a dual thing and we'll also further go into this into specifically the k-pop industry and how basically black bodies have been used as cultural appropriation hybridization but also transculturalism and how the k-pop identity is constantly switching and having complex layers of racial and gender hybridity and speaks on global capitalism's encounters of other cultures. So we find this to be really interesting, having two separate aspects of black bodies within music industries, but also has been created. Um, and we do want to um, digress that I am a white-looking male. Just want to say that out there. I am a white person. I was assigned female at birth, but I think we both recognize that we speak from a place of humility and genuine academic integrity, but also curiosity and knowing that it is sort of our responsibility to understand these topics, how they affect us, because we as all listeners are media consumers and having this cultural recognition is a way to honor historically where things come from and why we must respect them and how it applies even nowadays because rock movement started many many years ago but it's still relevant with artists that are now appropriating it appropriating it and what our role is as you know people that have this platform but also students so yeah yeah look at you the white artist mm-hmm. mari so the point of this episode i would say is looking into the black bodies of rock music and there's an increasing um, importance within academia, specifically from Daphne A. Brooks, whose ideology on rock music criticism, as she calls for a more inclusive and nuanced approach to rock music, um, specifically in its criticism, in the acknowledgement, but also to its diverse cultural influences. So this rock music criticism should be a multifaceted and interdisciplinary field that should not 
only focus on the musical aspects. It should also look into the broader cultural and societal context of which rock music is created and consumed. Um, for example, the racial dimensions of this genre. I mean, as we talked about in the introduction, because we're creating a podcast and it's in Spotify, we are media producers, but also the people that are listening to this and spreading it are media consumers. So I think it's it's very important to understand the role that media consumption has, uh, specifically when talking about rock music, of course, and how it is both a reflection of culture, but also a tool that can be used to shape and change it. So as with everything in art or anything in life, it is political. Yeah. So she basically goes on to state that black culture has played a pivotal and significant role in the, ro- the development of uh, rock music. And this is like where our main focus is. One of these big racial influences was Rosetta Tharp, a queer black woman, as was mentioned by an academic called Wald, which shall be referenced more in the rest of the podcast and what we're going to be talking about. And she basically states that often named a sister Rosetta Tharp was a pioneering African-American gospel singer next to also being a guitarist and the sort of catalyst for the rock movement, but also blending it with her own cultural identity. And talking about cultural identity... This also, the way that Rosella Tharp also bridged the gospel music was also with the blues and cellular music. So for those who don't know what the blues is, um, the blues is a type of music genre that combines the bass, slow melodic bass um, kind of guitar playing. And what she did is that she played a pivotal role in the musical roots of rock music, particularly blues, as mentioned by two scholars, Stodwell and Lorigan, which many black African-American often characterized African-American artists such as Robert Johnson, Muddy Waters, Holland Wolf were therefore blue pioneers. This is just because of the big influence it has on rock music and how much the blues in of itself is rock music. But because rock music's evolution throughout the years is very important to look back at the roots and look at a, just, just look at the infancy of rock music, yeah. specifically looking at the artists who created the foundation of rock. I know I said that a lot. Don't worry. Okay. We're still going to talk about it. Something else the Ward also mentions is that Tharp also struggled to gain a lot of recognition. Even in today's day and age, rock music is mainly associated with white musical artists and white culture, specifically Elvis Presley, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, and Bob Dylan. So, Andrew, as we were talking about in the introduction, I think as sociologists, but also as international students, we have the responsibility of bringing this more nuanced approach to the things that we are talking about. And one of them is analyzing how Tharp's influence on rock music was not only influential to the genre and to black culture in general or people of color, but also how she challenged a lot of gender and racial norms, which were very prevalent at that time, like the stereotypes, the segregation, the discrimination. It still happens nowadays, but back back in the 60s, the 70s, during the civil rights movements, it was even more present. So the pushback that people of color or queer people or women needed to have was even bigger. So I think it is important to recognize that her distinct style and like innovative guitar playing techniques shaped the rock and roll sound, but it was also like a consequence of her environment and the people that she surrounded herself with. So it's also important to note that as a queer person, but also as a woman, the contributions that she did to rock were not only the techniques she used in music, but also how she performed. So a lot of our consumption around media is not so much 
the actual, especially with music, is not so much the auditive aspect, but also the visual aspects. We can see this in concerts or in music videos. So her bodily techniques and expressions were also pivotal to the creation of dancing and expression on stage. And again, this is giving credit to a marginalized person such as she was. And we can like condense this to a phrase that our researchers wrote. Um, which I really liked, which is the electrification and dynamic and energetic performances, which were not seen as much. So when we see videos of like the Beatles, for example, they're mostly just huddle around singing the occasional uh, dance. And of course, they were experimental in their music. And we mustn't take the credit away from that. But we can see that black people or people of color or uh, queer people are generally more free with their bodies and mainstream media or people that were already in power were a little bit scared of this and the challenging of these norms allowed it to flourish even more and the performances we see now with drag people with uh, people of color indigenous people uh, is much more liberating than you know stiff white ass people so basically what Maddie's <laughs> trying to say is that you see those little artists you know the kukat dance but solely just want to dance yeah basically tiktokers <laughs> To go back to the point, as you mentioned also drag queens, there's also the whole phenomenon phenomenon, sorry, about voguing. Now, for those who don't know voguing, voguing comes from the boredom scene, which originates from Brooklyn back in the, I believe, 1950s. Um, but basically, what voguing is, an expression of queerness and of using up space in a more artistic and a more feminine way, and there's many yeah. more categories towards that. But for those who just think what voguing is, it's mostly just like... If you think about this, season 10, Miss Cracker doing a death drop. A death drop is not voguing. A voguing is also not putting your arms like, hey, you know, like, if you think about voguing like a white woman doing voguing, that's not voguing. That's noging, for those who don't know. <laughs> what does noging mean? Noging is the stiffness. Because voguing, it's all about the bodily movement of feeling elegant, of yeah. feeling like you're poised, you're it, you know? And that's what really, what embraces the ballroom scene. However, it's been kind of taken away by mass media. And I find it really interesting that how black trans women created ballroom scene, but also many other communities and many more marginalized individuals also contributed to ballroom scene. It's wild to see that even in a queer community such as the drag queens or the drag artists, let's say, they're trying to use voguing as a style that could be theirs and it isn't. It's it's kind of reminiscent of this where they're, they're depicting the notions of voguing, yet they're not voguing. They're not like bitch where's the flexibility at yeah, where's I the dip know. you're not you're not dipping you're just hurting you're literally hitting your head on the floor like <laughs> smack the hips aren't hipping you know shakira would not be proud exactly and if you're not making shakira proud who are you so basically i just wanted to mention two two interesting points the first one is i have a tattoo on my left hand it says encuentrame la discoteca which in like it's in, in spanish it's in, it's in French, basically. Um, you know, Andrew would know. Mm. <laughs> no, it's in Spanish. And it says, find me at the discotheque. And I had to write a research paper uh, for school. And I wrote it about how countercultural movements in the U.S., especially the music that they produced, became a political tool to stop the Vietnam War, or at least the propagation of people that were in favor of it, or politicians, you know, the mass media, and also, you know, population in the U.S., but also the Western powers. But the reason why I got this tattooed is because I found it fascinating how, I don't know, how diverse and how fruitful 
this music genre was and i think it also contributes to the general idea of how we do not give enough credit to these artists yeah. and we do not uh i don't know vocalize so much their their impact on the way we dress right now or or even like the slang that some people use like the sleigh and the queen and how um what is that type of language called uh, A-A-V-E? A-A-V-E, exactly. So that's that's another example of things that are being reappropriated. And I personally don't think, and I can be held accountable for it, that not all like particular language usage in groups only needs to be for those groups. It's just rather how other groups can be able to also use them in other, um, in other contexts and how it can be both respectful, but sort of an integration of, of different groups and language usage but in this case you know uh, music exploration so so yeah that was my first point i can't remember the second one but we'll get to it don't worry girly yeah. pops as was mentioned it's also this whole focus on white performers right so the way the way white performers kind of engage with black music in the starting years of rock music particularly in the blues gospel and rhythms um blues too White artists would often take the elements of blue, blue music, adapt it to their own liking, and fuse it with other music genres, which did create new subgenres of rock. Some of the elements that, that like of blues that were embraced and used were the guitar techniques, which could also be related to Rosetta Tharp, and also the vocal styles. For example, the use of uh, black musical traditions to create and develop rock music as a distinct genre, mostly started in the 50s, where, for example, Chuck Berry or Little Richard and Elvis Presley also, as an example, started to be to appear. Elvis, however, wasn't always seen as this like iconic individual. You know, he had his own movie made and everything um, during that period, as he is today, primarily because of the conservative mindset that used to rule back then. And this brings me back to the point that I was, you know, thinking about and forgot, but now I remembered. During, I think it was during the... Yeah, like 70s, disco music was very, very like prevalent uh, and people were liking it. But a lot of rock, uh, rock artists, specifically, I don't know, people that like the Beatles or that like, uh, I don't fucking know, like Led Zeppelin or... Yeah, it's like the, the fan bases. Yeah, the fan bases of those groups. Not only did they hate the disco movement because of the people that were, you know, like pioneering it and creating it and the widespread like influence it was having because... I think as a lot of the contributions that black people and people of color and queer people have made throughout history, they sort of are quite a direct threat to the status quo and the traditional family, um, you know, the whole heterosexual cis, like traditional um, family, it posed a threat to this and also to the politics that went behind it. So they started, I think there was this whole event where they burnt disco lps like rock oh, yeah. rock fans because they were so against it and radio stations in the u.s stopped playing it less so this is like a direct i think even a direct contradiction because those who created rock are the same people not not the same same people but the same group of people that uh also were also creating disco so in a sense it's like it accommodates only when the person in power is creating these things and when they can be the ones like you know vocal about uh the music genre or the performance so this goes on to you know the point about elvis presley you know he was often criticized for singing black music and dancing like like people of color and like them as artists or as performers who were like depreciated and undervalued because they were a minority at that time 
but then when he when he became famous as a white artist even after he died he he became i think the the king of rock that's what he was called but anyways rock music was seen as a like a minority music it was uh underappreciated and then and then undervalued but when this man you know used these movements he was mostly known for how he danced and how liberated you know his his body was it became popular so it there is quite a contradiction and yet it is blatantly clear why these things happen and yeah. why these people get the recognition that they do and we can also see this later on in the 1960s 70s 80s 90s where it was mostly white musical artists such as the beatles rolling stone led zeppelin queen nevada and Radiohead, gained so much popularity like they really did dominate the music industry whereas you know there were some black artists such as Jimi hendrix however it was not on the same level as these white artists and having this worldwide popularity and very much kind of how whiteness has reshaped rock in the sense of its kind of appeal to the public whereas there's a scholar called dali and they realize that the use of black music traditions by white musicians could be cultural appropriation but could also be cultural appreciation as we me and maddie we don't listen to rock i believe you do listen to rock what is love um no i i wouldn't say so like a lot of people that I hear them listening to rock. I'm like, no, it's not my Yeah, life. but I find it really interesting how it could be appreciation and appropriation. However, I feel like as a white person, I do not get to say which one it is, but I do find it interesting, but also important to state that there are academics out there who do state that it is appropriation, but can also be appreciation. It just really just depends on the individual um, and this individual being black artists. Um, also, shout out to Rosella Tharp, she's a baddie. <laughs> uh, I also want to make a, a very clear, uh, I think I think a stance that I personally would like to have, and let's see if, if Babs would agree. Just as we stated um, in the introduction, that you know our positionality, who we are as people, are like a very brief introduction to our own identities and what that poses in the world, I think it's very important to understand that this was done through research, through uh, the music that we've consumed, but also through like what academics have said and like validated sources. It's very important to take everything we say, you know, with with a grain of salt. It's it's also interesting if there's something you have to criticize about this podcast or anything that we have to say. Uh, I think we learn by being humble, but by keeping each other accountable at the same time. And just because we have this platform doesn't mean that we know more or that we're more in the right, but rather we have it. And it is it is part of the dynamic between us, the producers of content and consumers to have some sort of interaction between, you know, sparking up conversations or between people that are just listening between themselves yeah. being like, yo, Andrew and Maddie, stupid fuckers, you know, or no, based bitches. I mean, please don't call me that. I'm also a human being. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but, yeah. Um, and I think adding on to all the points that we also talked about is Wick, 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 yeah, uh, analyzes the sociological role and 
impact of rock music and how not only were they influential in music itself, but also to the countercultural and civil rights movements and how it played to a certain extent a role in racial integration and how black and white artists at some point started collaborating and that rock became like a unifying force that went beyond racial divisions and not in the sense of like, ooh, we don't see color, but rather we have a positionality of our races and what that means in a social context and sort of use that to counterpose the racial divisions and segregation, discrimination um, that was happening at that time. And as we said before in the introduction, not only are we going to be talking about the black bodies in rock, but also about the black appropriation within K-pop. Um, we do want to give a trigger warning for this part, specifically mentioning blackface, racial slurs, mouthing racial slurs, uh, purely aesthetic uses of black cultures and hairstyles. Um, we do want to give a trigger warning towards this as anyone who's listening that might feel offended. Please do note that this is coming out of a place um, of love. We just want to inform people of what we have researched, but also as a place of awareness for people to still be aware of what they consume nowadays. As we've said before, we're on Spotify because we're those people. But still, trigger warning for those who who do have strong feelings towards this. Um, but yeah, we're, we're now going to continue. So notably, just to say off the bat, if you guys do not know Big Bang or 2Anyone, they're from this one company called X, uh, YGX, right? YGX, not the best of companies to be at, just to be honest. And both of them, uh, both both of the groups, um, they're four members each. One is a boy band, one is a girl band, as they say. Um, they wore do-rags and had cornrow braids in some of their videos. That being said about the, the, the K-pop industry and everything, we do need to give a bit of context on South Korea, as South Korea is kind of a homogenous nation within the world, or it was during the emergence of K-pop, and this kind of had a history or legacy of race that is less accessible to them, right? And having such assimilation of black culture into Korean culture via the prevalence of prevalence sorry <laughs> of mainstream entertainment results in kind of dehistorization of black cultures you know as a lot of black elements were removed from the cultural and physical context onto south koreans and they kind of utilize this as a type of aesthetic you know so as we said with Big Bang and to anyone using cornrows or having braids, or having do rags, it's still prevalent nowadays. As if you see, um, there's this TV show called Street Woman Fighter. There's a second season with um, there's this one group called Lady Bounce. They're kind of like a dance crew kind of TV show where dance crews compete each other. One of the contestants, uh, she's South Korean, right? However, she does have kind of um, a business, and she's she's got this business of making do rags. And keep in mind, she's purely South Korean and she does this just in the aesthetic of black culture. Um, and often artists don't consider or know the historical roots. Uh, this can be because of a lack of education or exposure to other cultures, but also a genuine ignorance and the derogatory in like intent behind blackface in mainstream shows. As they did have like in South Korea, a caricature of um, a person of color and it was heavily, heavily criticized by the Western world or by social media by being heavily racist as, as it was, you know? And are we able to separate this cultural appropriation from history? Um, you know, because there's, there's some practices such as yoga, ballet dance, or classical ballet go as global body practices. 
However, one cannot assume that the practice is free from homogeneity and global power dynamic, you know, as using one's race as an aesthetic is not the same as using classical ballet, as they just do not go hand in hand, as race is heavily, heavily, heavily rooted in colonial ties and so many more fucked up things that we cannot link both side to side, you know? Um, yeah, and I think it's also important to note how there's, uh, like, the first point that we talked about was obliviousness, but also how there's willful ignorance, so people are aware of, you know, the impact and the causes of appropriating peoples of color, like, their their culture in something that is so mainstream and so popular. I think K-pop is one of the biggest genres in music right now, at least in Spotify, but yeah, some people are willfully ignorant and use it to profit. So we must talk about the distinct nature of hip-hop and its aesthetics and how they cannot be severed from black uh, origins. So despite K-pop's reliance on black culture, the industry hasn't supported black lives, whether it be through protests or through uh, the way they create their music and giving recognition to the artists that they're you know, sampling from or the culture where it is origi- originating from. So today, like a, a striking number of K-pop hits are written and produced by black Americans, yet they're not given the credit or, you know, even the memes that we see on fan pages, they're they're mostly centered around the singers themselves yeah. um, and or not the idols or the yeah. idols. Exactly. So, again, me, for example, I don't listen to K-pop, but I didn't actually even know this as a person that was so unaware of this genre, knowing it was popular. And I had this idea of, you know, South Koreans and it's usually like uh, BTS. Yeah, BTS. Like, for example, BTS was a was a massive banger and you got all these guys and uh, people love them. And we are so unaware, or at least I was unaware of like the origins of where a lot of their music comes yeah. from, but their their influence in general. Um, and in general, I think the issue is that K-pop looks to the West for inspiration. So it takes away from black culture, which I think it's it's okay to take parts of another culture, but if it doesn't pour back into it in a circular sense, whether it be through recognition, collaboration, or other ways that you listeners could suggest or think of, then it's just pure pure appropriation and general, like uh, a new wave of... What would you call it, Andrew? It's a new wave of reappropriation within the music industry, I think, because... The mainstream region is just inherently white. It was made by white people and it still favors white people and white artists. I do think the kind of assimilating to the Western world also means taking away from black cultures, which should not be a thing. I don't I don't believe that taking away from black cultures and not giving back should be something to be done. I think a really, really good example was when I was a little bit younger, like three or four years ago, I was listening to Eminem and one of his songs... Uh, what is the one called? Without, Without me, me, yeah. Uh, it's by uh, it's by Eminem, and in one of the lyrics, he says like, "I am the first thing since Elvis Presley to do black music so yeah. selfishly and use it to give myself wealthy." So I think like we don't even have to go as back as like Elvis Presley or the Beatles or like you know Eminem. He's still a very famous person. K-pop. We continuously see examples of people that are consciously appropriating this genre, and. Appropriation doesn't just go to the cultural aspect, but also to the monetary aspect. Just as in colonialism, understanding and taking responsibility for colonialism, like European countries or just 
in general uh you talk about european countries or japan for example it's not enough to just recognize but also i think the reparations cannot simply be a recognition of like ooh, we as colonialist countries did this but it also must be a monetary institutional and you know to each their own perception of how society must change you know you got your marxists your anarchists whatever whatever rose your boat you got your Nicki Minaj fans called bobs <laughs> um but yeah i think this must happen with music it's not just a recognition of like ooh slay you know even the word slay or even uh the, the like the genres we're talking about and the, this podcast itself is like okay a recognition of this like a historical context but also where does the money go like come from and who does it go to you know who profits off of this both their image and both personally and just to like finalize on the k-pop we want to talk about how it has a, like a, as a genre has a willingness to imitate the trappings of other cultures without engaging beyond like surface aesthetics therefore it normalizes how pop culture sometimes or most of the time flattens people into unflattering stereotypes based on ethnicity or race or even sometimes gender so yeah so like in conclusion i mean I feel like us as the podcast committee, but also as SEC, we do believe that ignorance does not make harmful cultural appropriation acceptable. If you're going to do cultural appropriation, watch out, because what you're doing is wrong. If you do not know the context, if you do not understand the context, don't do it. And yeah, I think with all topics, it's, it's quite nuanced. Uh, this can go to like Halloween costumes and people like dressing up as belly dancers, or it can mm. go to music genres like uh, to to movies. I think they're important conversations to have, but we also need to see who is talking about them, whether it be you know us students, but also the people that are being affected by this. What do they have to say? Because we can you can we can be like voicing voicing their opinions or our own opinions, but the people that are affected in this case, it being people of color or I don't know, people from any sort of marginalized community, uh, if we're talking about like drag performances, what do drag people have to say about this? You know, it's, it's important to hear those that are directly affected and not necessarily vocalize our opinions from like just simply based on what they have to say. I think spreading, spreading awareness and making ourselves informed is important. I, for example, learned quite a few things through the research that was done for this podcast and also like talking about it with Andrew and it being like a relaxed conversation is quite a cool start to this uh this podcast thing Majigal. yeah i mean listen i did it back in my first year and i'm in my third year i'm a lot more confident right. in what i've been studying but also what i can reproduce and saying but listen listen this year podcast smashing out the gate you know why we might have a little listening listening party, yeah? For all for all of the committee members, um, we do want to keep in mind that we might be doing um, launch parties. So keep an eye out on the, our Instagram yeah. because, yeah, quite sexy. But we don't want to give two end remarks um, to our listeners right now. Yeah. One of them is how can the listener become more aware of the music they consume. So please do reflect on these questions as we will not be answering them. They, we've been going on for too long, babes. <laughs> Our voices, tired. Yeah. Another one, make sure that the artist is not solely based on the fetish of a minority community. Please, for the love of God, look up the artists you are supporting and look up their agency because nine times out of 10, sometimes they're really bad. Like really. Yeah, and like this is a whole nother conversation, you know, about 
cancel culture. I personally, Maddie, don't agree with it. But uh, I think the best way is for all of us to be as aware as we can. And I don't think if anybody listens to Elvis Presley, it's like the cancellation of their existence or like, oh my God, you listen to K-pop, the death. No, it's more so like, okay, I consume this. What does this mean? Okay, what can I do with this information? And I think that's what's what the importance and the responsibility of being part of a community in our case students but I think to all listeners of all ages and context because we're quite international we're international girlies should take responsibility and that being said thank you for listening to season four yeah also fabulous fabulous help from both Matilda and Messiah Messiah lovely sec um secretary Secretary, yeah. Secretary, I know my shit, and also a little Luxembourgish baddie called Aurélie. Yeah, she's slay. She's gonna be doing all the editing. You know, Andrew and I have been giggling throughout uh, the forty minutes long. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I would say even longer. Way too long. Yeah, like it was. It was so long that for the prep time, I boiled my egg for lunch. Well, for dinner, lunch, and it, it was boiling for a while because we, we were lost in conversation, you know? But yeah, we, we, we do want to say massive thanks to our team, um, our lovely small indie team, because, you know, we're indie people. Yeah, we're besties. We're all like those white hippies that wear like, a, you know, like the spice latte girlies. I love them. I root for them. Right. <laughs> so this is the end of the first episode of season four. Woo! Woo! Bye! Bye!